0: How do we tell when the authority and proficiency that others present to us is something that they genuinely possess and not merely the appearance of such? Manifestations of true authority. Are perhaps characterized by some curious paradoxes. A story, a legend that transports us right to the very heart of this paradox is that linked to Canute, the ancient king of England who reigned between 1016 and 1035 the story of canute is that he had his throne carried down to the seashore and seated upon it he commanded the waves not to rise but of course inevitably he ended up getting wet when I was a child The story was told to us at school as a warning against arrogance and presumptuousness. Don't be like King Canute, the message seemed to be. Remember that no one, not even a king, has command over the forces of nature. Remember always not to presume... You have authority beyond its allotted bounds. But this is not quite the message that the story of Canute was originally intended to convey. And before we turn to consider what that original message was, it's interesting to notice how the legend of King Canute persists in two distinct forms, one of them a warning and a condemnation of arrogance, and the other, although the incidents in the story are exactly the same. Something far more laudatory, far more affirmative of Canute's actions. The story first appears, written in Latin in 1129, by the 12th century historian Henry of Huntingdon in his book Historia Anglorum, the History of the English. Henry writes, At the summit of his power, and he's referring to King Canute, he ordered a seat to be placed for him on the seashore when the tide was coming in. Thus seated, he shouted to the flowing sea, Thou too art subject to my command, as the land on which I am seated is mine. And no one has ever resisted my commands with impunity. I command you then not to flow over my land. Nor presume to wet the feet and the robe of your lord. The tide however, continuing to rise as usual. Dashed over his feet and legs without respect to his royal person. Then the king leaped backwards saying, Let all men know. How empty and worthless is the power of kings, for there is none worthy of the name, but he whom heaven, earth and sea obey by eternal laws. From thenceforth, King Canute never wore his crown of gold, but placed it for a lasting memorial on the image of our Lord affixed to a cross, to the honour of God, the Almighty King. Through whose mercy may the soul of Canute, the king, enjoy everlasting rest. The original legend of King Canute then, far from a warning against arrogance, was instead intended to present him as a paragon of humility canute is a good and wise king it's suggested because he recognizes how the origin of all authority is in the divine or in nature paradoxically canute's authority comes from recognizing this he's a good king because he recognizes that his powers only extend to a certain limit and he is mindful of not overstepping that limit. The other version of the story has him doing precisely that unwittingly and consequently in that version he's exposed as incompetent and a fool. the image of the Emperor in the tarot. Of course the depiction of this figure varies from deck to deck, but often there's a small and intriguing detail that links this archetype with the legend of King Canute. Usually the Emperor is depicted As a king, a male monarch with a crown and a scepter, often seated on a throne, sometimes dressed in full armour as if for combat. But the odd detail in question is that the throne with this monarch seated upon it is in the open air. Sometimes even in the midst of nature or a space that seems to be some kind of wilderness. There's usually no palace, no court, no retinue. What kind of a monarch is it who appears all alone, seated in the middle of nowhere? Seated like... Canute on the shoreline, exposed to the sea. A monarch, who for his power depends on no one, takes nothing from anyone but from himself. His authority seems to originate from somewhere other than the material trappings of the external world. As is often the case, the Maasai tarot deck, despite its very stark, unembellished imagery, nevertheless, somehow it manages to convey particularly vividly the subtle qualities of this Archetypal figure The Emperor's throne in the Maasai deck appears very lightweight really nothing more than a chair and the emperor's position with regard to it is interesting. He almost appears to be leaning against it rather than sitting. In his right hand is his scepter, which is holding outwards and aloft. And his gaze is focused on it, almost as if he's contemplating it. Or in some kind of mysterious communion with this symbol of earthly power. With his left hand, meanwhile, he's holding onto his belt. In a way that almost looks as if he's trying to resist fidgeting. As if he's grabbing on to his belt in order to hold himself in check. Maybe so that he can focus all of his energy at where he's directing his gaze. And his legs. Similarly, the right leg is crossed over the left... Again, It's as if by doing this he's holding his energies in reserve. This is a man who's fit and healthy. He's pretty much in the prime of life. Although with his beard perhaps tending somewhat towards middle age. But the way he's leaning rather than sitting with his hand tucked into his belt and his right leg crossed over the left. If we put ourselves in that same bodily position, if we try it on to see what it feels like, then maybe it's the kind of pose we might adopt if we're leaning against a bus stop (laughs) waiting for a bus. Or we're expecting some kind of announcement or circumstance to arise. Where there's a possibility that we'll need suddenly to spring into action. So this is a man all alone. Completely reliant upon his own powers and resources. And by virtue of these, perhaps, as his bodily position betrays, he's full of energy. He is manifestly ready to turn that energy into action at a moment's notice. But perhaps the most remarkable, characteristic, and mysterious feature of this figure, is he's not doing that. With his hand on his belt and his legs crossed, for the present moment at least, he's refraining from action. He's choosing to reserve his energy, he's focusing his attention in the place where he wants to focus it. He's checking his impulse to action and he's remaining within a consciously chosen limit. It's this attitude depicted so vividly and so bodily in the Maasai Tarot that perhaps characterises the nature of true authority and marks the difference between the two versions of King Canute. On the one hand, the one who doesn't recognise his limits and renders himself an incompetent narcissistic fool. And on the other hand, the one who explicitly exposes his own limits for all to see, paradoxically revealing his nature as a wise and just king through acknowledging that the ultimate authority is from the divine and never his own. The emperor seems to be teaching us how energy... That understands and at the same time respects its own nature and limits seems to be the hallmark of genuine authority. The power of the emperor, writes the anonymous author of Meditations on the Tarot, is affected by the contraction of his personal forces and by voluntary immobility at his post. For reasons way too complicated to rehearse here, Alistair Crowley associated the figure of the Emperor with the Hebrew letter Zadi. For Crowley the Emperor represents a combination of energy in its most material form with the idea of authority. Crowley suggests that this notion of intense energy is on a matter poetically conveyed by that sound z or s, as in the name of that Hebrew letter Zadi. He suggests that this persists etymologically today in words such as Caesar, Tsar, Senate, Senior and seigneur. In Judaism, from Zadi, the name of the letter, is derived the word Zardik used to describe a person who is righteous and sometimes given as an honorific title to a person displaying those qualities. It's thought that the reason for this partly might be that the form the letter Zadi takes looks a bit like a person on their knees in prayer. Among Alistair Crowley's so-called Holy Books of Thelema, which are a series of foundational texts, channelled or received whilst in a state of trance, there is one entitled Liber Zadi, Which, given the connection posited by Crowley between the letter Zadi and the figure of the Emperor, it seems not unreasonable to suppose may offer some further insights regarding the Emperor or the righteous person. Casting some more light perhaps on that attitude we have identified so far. The authority that seems to radiate from paradoxically restraining one's energy and remaining ever mindful of its direction and its appropriate limits part of this text reads as follows many have arisen being wise it says they have said seek out the glittering image in the place ever golden and unite yourselves with it many have arisen being foolish they have said stoop down into the darkly splendid world And be wedded to that blind creature of the slime. I, who am beyond wisdom and folly, arise and say unto you, Achieve both weddings, unite yourselves with both. Beware, beware, I say, lest ye seek after the one and lose the other. But since one is naturally attracted to the angel, another to the demon, let the first strengthen the lower link, the last attach more firmly to the higher. Thus shall equilibrium become perfect. Everyday experience teaches us that when we're presented with something attractive our response is to tend to move towards it and conversely when we're presented with something unpleasant we tend to respond by fighting it or avoiding it but what this text lieber Zadi seems to be encouraging is a practice, a way of being that loosens these habitual responses. The text encourages us, regardless of our personal predilections, to unite ourselves with the highest and the lowest, to immerse ourselves not only in what we personally find pleasant, but also in what we find revolting. And in this way, a perfect equilibrium will result. That same equilibrium, perhaps, that gives the Emperor that unique capacity of holding And directing energy without submitting to action. Without falling into a habitual response of either moving towards or fighting against or turning away. It's uniting ourselves with what we find revolting that can prove particularly challenging we find things revolting perhaps for two kinds of reasons firstly because we might find something personally unsavoury or the second reason that we recognise it as being morally wrong In the case of the first, uniting ourselves with what is revolting perhaps entails overcoming our ego, our personal preferences, but in the case of the second, uniting ourselves with something morally wrong, that would entail overcoming our conscience and that's a different matter entirely and a point where many would-be practitioners of Libasadi could be in danger of going astray. If we knowingly choose to engage in something that we know to be wrong that may even be regarded as a criminal act then of course we have done wrong we have committed a criminal act and far from having united ourselves with whatever it was we found morally revolting instead We've merely become corrupted by it. This is not the path of the emperor. This is not the path of the righteous person. But of someone who has fallen into arrogance and presumption. By overstepping the limits of their personal authority. None of us has the right to do something that we know to be wrong. We overstep the mark if we do that. And far from wisdom or equilibrium, it merely leads us into corruption. So, how do we unite ourselves with what's morally revolting, with the lowest, as Libazardi calls it. In this regard, I think, the Emperor is not only an archetypal figure representing our goal, but also a model through imitation of which we arrive at that goal the emperor wields a power that takes its authority from recognizing the limit of its own power and if we recognize the limit of our power that we do not have the right to consciously commit wrong, then we will not fall into the error of supposing that we unite ourselves with what is morally revolting by enacting it. Instead, like the Emperor, we lean back, we cross our legs we hold on to our belt and instead of inclining into action or response to what confronts us as a seeming evil instead we seek to understand we unite ourselves with it not through action but through the understanding Very often, if we're confronted with someone who has done the very worst kinds of things, if instead of recoiling from that we instead seek to understand, then what we arrive at frequently is a set of circumstances, a set of unfortunate influences and often a series of bad personal choices. And maybe eventually we reach a point in our understanding where we have a strong sense that this person could have been us of course we hope that we wouldn't have made those same choices and we may resolve not to make the choices that this person has but I think it's when we've arrived at that strong sense of as the old saying puts it There but for the grace of God go I. That we've truly arrived at what in Bazardi is described as that true equilibrium. It's through understanding rather than through enactment that we can arrive at the kind of competence and authority... Embodied by the archetype of the emperor. Returning again finally to King Canute. When he received his soaking. He was teaching a lesson about the difference between a tyrant and genuine authority by modeling in front of everybody what a tyrant looks like he evidently understood the meaning of there but for the grace of god go i because he was able to give such a vivid depiction of a presumptuous arrogant narcissistic tyrant but the true meaning of what he was doing in that original legend, that original story, is the stepping back from that role that he takes on and then pointing to it as merely an ironic enactment to engender instead an understanding of the nature true authority